beautiful people. Welcome to Inside and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. Today, I would like to introduce you to my friend, mentor, and best-selling author, Rupal Patel. Rupal is an entrepreneur, international speaker, advisor, and the author of From CIA to CEO. Rupal's career has taken her from military briefing rooms in jungles and war zones at CIA, which stands for Central Intelligence Agency, to corporate boardrooms and international stages. She has advised four-star generals, earned war zone service medals, started several businesses, and most recently delivered her TED Talk. Rupal helps leaders and organizations unlock their potential within and build enduring success. Her work has been incorporated into the MBA programs at London Business School, Henley Business School, and the University of Edinburgh Business School. Rupal holds an MBA from London Business School. Rupal, thank you so much for coming. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be talking to you, Natalia, and I'm looking forward to wherever this conversation will go. Me too. Well, let's start with your personal journey. It's quite a unique one from CIA to being CEO. How, how did it happen to you? And maybe you can take us even more in the beginning since the moment you started growing up. How was it for you? And, you know, why did you make the choices that you made? God. Um, <clears throat> so I guess the main thing is going way back to the relative early days of my life. I was never one of those children who knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I come from a family of doctors. So both of my parents are doctors. And because everyone assumed that I would be a doctor because they're doctors, that was the one thing I decided I was not going to do. So <laughs> I knew what I didn't want. It was one thing, um, but I didn't really know what I did want. And so it was sort of hard, you know, for example, going to college and picking a major because it just seemed like the world was full of possibilities. There was so much I didn't know. There were so many different things that I could do. And I remember in high school, my guidance counselor, when I was like 16 or 17 years old, saying to me, she's like, you know, it's going to be really hard for you because you can be good at so many different things. So familiar. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's a good problem to have, of course, but it is a problem because you can be totally overwhelmed by just well, all of the potential things that are, you know, in the world that you could do and, and excel at. I've always had this, I guess, an experimental approach to life. You know, I've always kept my eyes open for things that interest me, for opportunities uh, that sounded like they could be kind of fun to explore. Going back to, to university when I was an undergrad, I did all the majors. <laughs> I, did, I explored doing engineering, pre-med, uh, political science, sociology, uh, economics, all of these different uh, fields of study, which I was genuinely interested in. Psychology was another one. Um, and I, because I just had to choose, otherwise it was going to be too late. I just randomly chose political science because you know, the social sciences in general really appealed to me. The idea of like really complex problems that don't really have a, a fixed sort of right or wrong answer. It felt really relevant. And then I went to graduate school where I studied international affairs and the CIA basically asked me if I would be interested in applying for a job. And I was incredibly surprised <laughs> because I thought, well, 
I don't, I mean, are they, what would someone like me do? I don't want to go out and be a spy or do the things that I assumed what, you know, I, as a total outsider, I had no idea what the CIA did. But anyway, I, I, so, well, it sort of sounds interesting. Why not see where it goes? And so I started the process. And the more I realized what my job would entail, the more it seemed like the perfect place for me. So I could do things like, you know, get really smart about really complex and interesting issues that were relevant. I would be able to have a career overseas. I would be able to learn languages and engage and, you know, do things that felt really interesting. And so it happened not by total chance, but it it wasn't part of any plan because I didn't have a plan. (laughs) So that's how it happened. And it was probably one of the most uh, exciting and interesting and formative uh, times in my life. And I just feel really lucky that I had that experience. I can only imagine being, you know, in locations in the Middle East and uh, in war zones. And it's it must be exciting and scaring at the same time. And it's definitely an experience that is very, very unique. How did it bring you then to being a CEO of the company? How did it bring <laughs> you to business? Yeah, it's not a natural or obvious transition. So I started working at the agency when I was in my early 20s. And as I started getting closer and closer to 30, which back then it seemed like such a big milestone. Now I feel like 30, you're still, you know, so young. But um, as you know, I think a lot of people, when you sort of hit a milestone birthday, you start reflecting on the bigger picture and what does it all mean? And what do I want to do? And where does it, you know, where do I go? Mm-hmm. And so as I was getting closer to 30, I started having these, you know, these conversations with myself. And for me, because of that thing of like, you know, potential, having the potential to be good at so many different things, I didn't want to just settle for being good at one thing, you know, and I wanted to push myself in different ways, try something else, learn new skills, basically test myself in a totally different way. I, you know, had spent some of my time while I was at the agency, uh, sort of in in London. And there was something about London that really called to me. It felt like, in a very strange way, it felt like home, even though I have zero relationship to the city. I, I sort of had sort of zoned in on finding a way to get to London. And so I, you know, I applied for various jobs that I thought would be uh, an obvious transition. And it didn't really seem to I didn't really make sense to them, even though I could very clearly point to, hey, this is how these skills that I've developed here are directly transferable. People, the most annoying response, and it was consistent and universal, was like, you have a very interesting background. And I was like, yeah, thanks. I know it's interesting, but I want to, you know, what does that mean mm-hmm. um, for me sort of working in this, in this, in this environment? Anyway, so I didn't get any of those jobs. And I thought, well, how can I help? other people make sense of myself, but also how can I make a transition into the private sector, for example, in a way that I was more knowledgeable about the foundations of, you know, sort of how companies work and some of the the issues and the problems and the challenges. And so that's how I decided to go to business school. And because I wanted to be in London, LBS was the only was was the only school that I applied to. And it just, it felt like the right way to transition from, you know, the world of, of the CIA into something totally different in a way that I felt like I was going to get the, the fundamentals, the foundational knowledge that I needed, and also could help, you know, others be like, okay, well, at least like, she's got this MBA degree, like it ticks a box. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then you became an entrepreneur right after the school. Yes. Because naively, it didn't really tick the boxes that I thought it would tick. And so what I found was 
A couple of things. One, you know, this happens so often in recruitment, and maybe the world is different now than it was 10 years ago uh, when I was at business school. But, you know, people will, for example, be looking for someone to fill a marketing role, but they only want you if you already have experience in marketing. And so for someone like me, I have zero experience in the corporate environment. So how can I get that experience if no one's willing to give it to me? And so it felt like this really annoying chicken and egg problem that I kept confronting. And so... I went through that pain for probably like maybe six months. So when I was relatively um, early in my MBA program, and then I just thought, you know what, I'm not going to try to uh, force anything. Let me at least explore other options. And at the time, this is sort of 2011, 2012, um, London was really making itself known as sort of a startup capital of sorts. And so I thought, I like the theoretical notion of being my own boss. My parents for, you know, my entire childhood always instilled in us the the idea of being financially independent, of not relying on any employer for your entire livelihood. And I thought, okay, well, let me take it to the extreme and see if I can, Mm -hmm. you know, start my own company. And so that's how it happened. It was, again, not part of any plan. um, But through trial and error, through experimentation, through, you know, sort of also a bit of frustration, you know, at the way the the job market was treating me. I was like, you know what, if you don't want me, I'm going to want myself, I'm going to hire myself, and I'm going to start my own business, you know. And so it was that ultimate move of like, you know, choose yourself. Um, And that's, that's how that happened. That's incredibly inspirational. Your (laughs) background has already been very unique being at CIA. And then in the business school, and I know from experience because I also had an MBA, during the program, it's very difficult to somehow be different because everyone else is coming to get a job in, you know, this prestigious industry such as investment banking or management consulting. And it's very, very difficult to actually... um, dare to differ so it's it's and then it's even more difficult to become an entrepreneur and a successful one so um it's incredible how you sort of without a plan as you said embraced your uniqueness in this own way that helped you to build this unique journey and in your recent talk uh you are actually talking about embracing this inner weirdness and my question is how do you do that, especially at the moments yeah. of frustration, uh, as you mentioned, when you feel like, yes, I'm unique, but I don't want to be unique. You know, I just want mm-hmm. to be like everyone else. I don't know what mm-hmm. to do. I don't know where to go. How do you deal with the moments like that? Oof. Uh, I wish there were a single answer. Um, but sadly, the reality is that it changes over time. And So for example, when I was younger and I felt like an outsider or like I didn't fit in or I wasn't sort of seen as normal, I wanted nothing more desperately than to fit in and be seen as sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. part of anything. Um, And so it was a lot of just, it was just a lot of emotional turmoil. I would, you know, I think a lot of my, I would say sort of adolescence slash teens and maybe even into my early twenties was really emotionally fraught time where of this tension between like wanting to be a certain way, but not, but that wasn't being who I am authentically. And so that, again, that tension of like, do I be myself? Do I try to fit in? How much do I try to fit in? And all of that, that conversation. And I think, you know, different people handle it differently. For me, it was, it was, it was just a lot of pain for a long time. And I, all I can say is that 
it started to get better as I got older. I think what I realized with time and experience and maturity and a perspective, but also with working, you know, with a lot of the work that I do have, have done more recently and working with other leaders, other founders, other executives, all of this stuff is that that what that experience that I thought was just so unique to me of feeling like an outsider, feeling like I didn't fit in and all, it's totally universal. That is part mm. of the human experience. And I think so many people, because your own life is, of course, the most, um, the thing that you're obsessing most over, right? So it's, yeah. it's hard to gain perspective about the struggles of others sometimes. But the reality is I have yet to meet a single human being. And this goes all the way from like CEOs of like Fortune, you know, 500 companies, all the way to, you know, sort of early stage founders and all ethnicities, you know, backgrounds, socioeconomic class, race, all of these things, gender. Everybody feels that way at some point. Everybody mm. does. But the problem is, is that as a society and as sort of a popular culture and, and media, it loves to sell a very specific image of things. And so anyone who deviates from that, which most people will, of course, you it's it's a real internal battle. And so, for example, you know, leaders often feel like, oh, I have to change who I am before I can become, uh, you know, a, an executive or an MD or whatever, yeah. because, you know, a leader looks a certain way and talks a certain way. And usually it's a very alpha male, uh, sort of straight white alpha male sort yeah. of model that we've been given, right? So if you're not that person, you will already have that like, oh, do I have to become someone else? Do I have to start wearing a pantsuit? And do I have to shout at people and be unkind, you know? And, and the mm -hmm. reality is, no, you don't. But but that conversation with yourself and that acceptance of who you are, for me, has been a lifelong journey and a lifelong process of reflection and then um, sort of doing the work of just finally stop feeling like I'm, I'm just done. It's exhausting to apologize for who you are. It's exhausting to try to be someone you're not. And I made a choice, I would say probably in my mid 30s, so relatively late in life, that I was just done you know, and that yeah. I was enough as I am and that I would be the one who decided what I wanted to fix or if there was anything I wanted to fix mm -hmm. or change, but I was done with other people and their stereotypes and their archetypes of what someone should be like. We're all multifaceted. We're all multidimensional and no one human being can fit into any box and the boxes are, are politically orchestrated. They're not made by us. So I made that decision that I wasn't going to let those boxes constrain me anymore. Yep. But I appreciate that it was a really hard thing to do. And like I said, this is a long answer because it doesn't really yeah. have an answer. For me, it was a process. It, it, it was a, a sort of a 30 year plus process of self-reflection, of awareness, of recognizing where the messages that I had internalized had come from. So sometimes it had come from family members or teachers or the people I was surrounded with, sometimes it came from magazines or from, you know, patriarchy or whatever. So, you know, for me, it was also an analytical process of any time I talk to anyone and sort of work with anyone on some of their either limiting beliefs or, or, um, that tension between who they think they have to be and, and who they are. It's always a process of reflecting on, well, why do you think that? Right. Getting mm -hmm. to the root cause of like, why do we, think that we're not good with numbers or why we think mm -hmm. that, you know, women like us can't, I don't know, become CEOs or whatever, it, you know, that idea is. And if we start to look at the facts as to what the source of that belief is, 
a lot of the times they don't come from ourselves. A lot of the times they come from people who aren't even aren't even um, qualified to have those opinions or, or qualified to create those definitions. And so it's the way I refer to it is, is sort of unpacking all of that baggage, right? And, and examining yeah. the baggage we all carry um, and then leaving all of the stuff that doesn't work for us or serve us or that we didn't put on ourselves mm-hmm. and choosing very carefully what we are going to pick up and embrace. Yeah, that's definitely very insightful. And for me as a coach, I also work with people who have limiting beliefs and trying to help them to understand what exactly did it come from and how we can, you know, switch it to something that is more useful and helpful in your life. Sometimes it's not as easy. Sometimes it's not that clear where it's coming from. And sometimes even if it's clear, People are still, you know, they're just so used to automatically have these beliefs and think these thoughts. Did you have an experience with your maybe clients of yours that, you know, they understand where the limiting beliefs is coming from, but they they just seem to not know what to do with that? (laughs) Yeah, I think it happens all the time. I mean, I don't have just one example. I have many examples. And I think that's why I refer to it as a practice because Mm -hmm. it's not just like, oh, you clear this belief or you know where it comes from and you sort of move on because most of us have been living as if that thing was true for most of our lives to suddenly realize that it's not from us and to see that it's, it's actually not even relevant. It still takes practice to, to internalize that because we've been so used to sort of reaching for a tape that's like, oh, well, you know, I'm not good enough or I'm not smart enough for this or this, you know, whatever the tape says that we play in our minds and to record over it will take practice and it will take intentionally behaving differently as if that tape weren't true until you've effectively, and this is such a, a random analogy because most people probably don't even know what tapes are. <laughs> for those of us who were born in the eighties, you know, sort of taping over it with something new <laughs> takes practice and it takes effort and it takes intention. And so it's not a one and done exercise. Once you have this epiphany moment or this realization, it takes work. And that's why a lot of people avoid it is because it's uncomfortable. It's easier to just shrink back into the corner. It's easier to believe the things you've always believed. It's easier to just keep going on as if nothing is different, but everything is different once you realize that the baggage you've been carrying around your whole life is not your own. So it takes work. It takes practice. And and I wish, like I said, I wish there was, um, I wish there was a faster way right, or a shortcut, yeah. but the reality is it isn't. So yeah. some people, some people will make that transition faster than others, right? For some, it's like, oh, wow, I realized this. And then within a few weeks or months or whatever, they start to behave differently. For some, it can take years. And as long as you're doing the work to, yeah, as long as you're doing the work, then it doesn't matter how long it takes. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, a person has two lives and the second life starts when they realize they only have one. So, um, I feel like, um, that's exactly summarizes what you're talking about. And I also liked your idea that you've shared previously on the fact that every human being is a spectrum of different qualities and different yeah. emotions and different personas inside themselves. Yeah. And uh, one of the techniques in your book from CIA to CEO is about tapping into the right persona, depending on the situation. Could you tell us yeah. more about this technique and how it can help? Yeah. So uh, exactly as you said, you know, we're all, 
we wear many different hats. We have different elements of our personality that become more obvious or become more muted in different contexts. And, you know, for example, the person we are with our friends and our peers when we're out, I don't know, on a Friday night having dinner and drinks is in some ways different to the person, for example, you know, I'm a mother of two. So when I'm, you know, with my kids at home and playing, I don't know, whatever games we're playing, right? I'm still fundamentally at my core, the same person, but the personality traits that are, uh, that come to the front are different in one context than another. And it's totally different when, you know, I'm speaking on a stage or totally different when I'm, you know, in a room full of CEOs. And, and again, it's not, it's not, Again, pretending to be someone you're not, it's just activating or muting different elements of your very multifaceted personality. And one thing that can really help is first and foremost, acknowledging that that's true again for everybody, right? We, we dial up or dial down different aspects of who we are based on our context. The second thing is very consciously choosing which elements we want to dial up or dial down because yes, we're a whole person. Yes, we bring all of ourselves with us everywhere we go. But we don't have to show all of ourselves everywhere we go because sometimes it's just not relevant, right? So it's being conscious about, okay, well, in this context, when I'm sitting at a boardroom table with 10 other CEOs, this is consciously the, the, the version of me that I'm bringing to the literal table versus you know, I'm going to bring a totally different, more playful version to when I'm hanging out with my my two daughters. And yeah. so it's being conscious about it. It's being intentional about it. And for some people, it's almost sort of doing a, you know, people do different things. Like you can do a little mini meditation or sometimes just the clothes you wear will activate a different feeling, a different sense of who you are, because let's face it, you know, clothes actually do have a real powerful impact. You, well, I, I won't speak for anyone else, but I feel very different when I'm wearing, you know, sort of a pencil skirt and heels to when I'm wearing sweatpants. Right? There yeah, is just yeah. a real connection we make between our appearance and, and how we feel. And so for some, it's, you know, getting into that sort of powerhouse persona, by putting on the heels or the suit or the glasses or whatever it is that 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 trigger that mm-hmm. emotional connection for you. For some, it's meditation and visualization. Um, so I would suggest experiment and see what really resonates for you. For me, it's a mix of lots of different things, but it's, as I said, it's first choosing the persona that you want to bring into that context, whatever mm-hmm. the context is and, and being intentional about it. And then sort of experimenting to see what works to help get you into that mindset and into that, into that version of yourself, uh, mm-hmm. you know, most quickly and most effectively. Yeah. Um, another practice that I personally implement is an awareness at the moment when you're opening a door and, and yeah. I tend to think to myself, who am I being walking into this door? Do I want to That's be, great. as you said, playful? Do I want to be serious? Who do I want to be? And once you start putting it into a habit, it really helps you transform the way you come across more often. Yeah. And it's interesting you use that because there's a whole, um, I wish I could remember the context in which I read about this, but there's some psychological effect and it's something like the doorway effect or the the Mm. threshold effect or whatever, but it's literally, for example, the way it came up in this context that I'm remembering, you know, you'll be in your house and you'll be like doing something and you'll be thinking about something and remember, okay, well, I need to find this thing or do this thing. And then you'll leave the room and it'll auto of a sudden escape you. And you're like, wait a second, what was that thing that I was looking for? So if you Mm -hmm. physically put yourself back in that room that you just left, it will come back to you. And I think, you know, our bodies are so hypersensitive and so attuned to the world around us. And people underestimate 
the impact our physical context, our physical surroundings have on us. And so once you become aware of the contextual impact, um, you know, of your surroundings on you, on your behavior, on your memory, on mm-hmm. your all of these things, you can use it, as you just said, as a tool, you know, choose to literally cross a threshold and go over onto a different, you know, element of yourself. And, and there are lots of great ways of working with the way our psychology works, because this thing, these things happen whether we're aware of them or not. So if you are aware of it, then use it to your advantage. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the environment that you live in, work in, um, has a lot of impact on how we feel psychologically, how much energy we feel. And as you said, it's right, it's a conscious choice to, to, to select the right environment for yourself yeah. and to notice what it is that is right environment for you. Yeah. I, however, also am mindful of those who would say, well, I know that, you know, I prefer to work in a nice environment, very tidy, but sometimes on some days I just don't have energy. You know, I know that it will, it would have made me, made me energized, but I just, I just don't seem to find any strengths inside of me to change it. Cause you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm lacking energy. I'm, uh, self-sabotaging. I'm not sure if, you know, I'm enough. Has something like this ever happened to you? And did you have any techniques on how to deal with the states like that? <laughs> yeah. So that self-pity and that like, oh, I don't feel like doing this. And oh, well, I know what's good for me, but I'm going to choose something else. Yeah. So, yeah. It happens to all of us. I think that's, that's just human, right? Uh, but the reality for me and the way I deal with it personally is a couple of things. One is sometimes you just got to suck it up, right? So I'm sorry, but like life's not, n- nothing in the world, nothing about life sort of is, um, is owed to any of us. And so yeah. if you know, for example, that certain things are better for you, you know, certain contexts you don't want to tidy up or whatever, that's fine. You don't have to do it, but also acknowledge the fact that sometimes you do just have to suck it up and do it if you want the result from the other side, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, people, for example, will complain about like, oh, I don't have time to exercise, but they want, they, they obsess over like wanting a certain type of body shape or strength level or whatever. Well, you got to do the work, right? So at some yeah. point, it's just being a grown up and acknowledging that, anything worth having is going to come with some effort. The reality is that like that's just how it works. You have to do the work to get the thing. So choose then to accept that if you don't do the work, then you won't get the thing. And, and, and that's okay too. Right. But it is a choice. It's not like you're uh, it's, it's not like other people have it where everything is just falling into their lap. I mean, some people, but I would say it's probably far more uh, of an exception than we like to think. Yes, some people have everything and if, you know, it's really easy and blah, blah, blah. The number of people I would say is like a fractional percent of the population. I mean, I'm making this number up, but I don't think it's that many. Mm-hmm. Most people who have the things that we want have done something to deserve it or at least done something to work for it. Um, not everyone deserves what they get. And yeah. that's good. You know, that's true. Some people get more than they deserve. Some people get less than they deserve. And, and that, again, is just one of the vagaries of life. And it's the sad reality of life. But you can't have something for nothing. That just fundamentally violates the laws of physics, right? There's got to be an action and a reaction. And so all you can control is the action, what you were doing. You can't always control the reaction. You can't always control the result, but all you can control is what you do. So part of it is just acknowledging that you're an adult and you have to just 
just do it sometimes. The other thing, and this is the slightly sort of less tough element of the tough love sort of answer, <laughs> is sometimes you just gotta, sometimes you just gotta let it go, right? Sometimes you do just have to accept that like, today is just not your day. Today is not going to be the day that you take on the world and you like do all of the things and you, I don't know, do whatever big thing, but don't let that be every single day that you're making excuses for yourself because then it will just turn into, you know, you're sort of, that's just how you operate all the time. And then that's obviously not going to have a positive, uh, any positive results. So it's, it's balancing, right? That you can control some things and you have to do the work to get the thing, Mm -hmm. but it's also acknowledging that sometimes, yeah, you just don't have it in you and your best is only going to be 10% that day. And that's okay. Do what you got to do for some people, you know, to recharge and to re-energize. It might be stepping back and, and taking a break and, and talking to friends or going for a walk or whatever it is. Sometimes you need to emotionally get things out of the way. And yeah. so for me, for example, and I'm having a really rough time and a, and a bad day or getting frustrated and angry and I can start to feel myself like stewing and spinning and going yeah. into that, like that circle of like negativity and this sucks and that sucks and this and <laughs> One of the things that I do, and this again, it has come from trial and error and experimenting. One of the things that I do, and I, I, I recommend to others if it's helpful, is to give yourself a time limit because you can spend waste weeks, months, years of your life being in that mindset, but nothing will change if you don't change. So the, what, what I do now is I set myself a timer and I say, okay, for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to crawl under the covers and cry and cry and scream into the pillow, or I'm going to lock myself in the bathroom or, you know, I'm going to just vent and fume and be really angry. And then when that timer goes off, I'm going to like wipe my face, blow my nose, do whatever I need to do, and then start doing something about it. Instead of bitching and moaning and complaining, I have to do something again. We can't control everything, but whatever is, is within our control, we should try to work with. And so. That, that's what I do. <laughs> like yeah. I said, it's, it'll be different for different people, but, um, you can't, you know, like I said, you just gotta at some, at some point grow up and acknowledge that, like, if you want something bad enough, you have to find a way to do it. Thank you. And, um, on your second point about, you know, uh, getting out your anger till certain amount of time, it's a super healthy approach because if, for instance, on the opposite, we would just be, fuming for the whole day with these bits and pieces of frustration, it is both not um, letting ourselves to let go of this anger. Mm -hmm. And also it is about us sort of uh, suppressing these emotions and uh, not really finding the healthy way for solving this problem. Whereas in your approach, you give yourself certain time to actually release this anger as an emotion and you don't, you know, slip into this pity space when uh, you just sort of dwell in this, you know, space of, you know, self-pity and uh, um, being miserable, but you take proactive steps to changing the situation. I really like it. this way and um, I also loved your analogy about growing up uh, in order to really change something in your life and I think it comes with this notion of personal responsibility that every choice is a choice and not making a choice is a choice in itself as well so it's um, it's very powerful analogy it is 
sometimes very difficult to find this balance between, you know, I want it all. I am a perfectionist. I've always been a perfectionist and I want it all. And, you know, um, I am so tired. I'm just going to procrastinate and lay down and I'm going to give myself an excuse because I've been working so hard and it can be felt as, you know, swings and uh, it might not be comfortable for a person because it's just two extreme states and they're changing too often. How do you have any advice on how to balance it so that to make it less swingy, if I may say so? (laughs) It's so interesting that you ask that because I've had a very recent and very personal experience with this. So first, before I answer that question, there is one thing I wanted to say about choice. Um, And, you know, all of the things that you and I are saying, I think part of the way I approach life is really acknowledging my privilege because I have choice. You have choice. There are billions of people around the world who do not have choice, who live in repressive regimes, who don't have democratic rights, who because of their gender or their race or their class or whatever, just do have a far, a very narrow range of options for their lives. And even in, you know, in the UK and in the US, you know, everyone's choices are, are shaped by, you know, race, gender, socioeconomic class, all of those things. But we have it relatively easy here. And so, there's only so much self-pity that I can tolerate because in the grand scheme of things, and I think, again, this is sort of my, maybe my more my political uh, science sort of mindset is we owe it to the rest of the world who does not have the luxuries or have the access that we do to just suck it up and stop bitching and moaning and just get on with what we can do. Again, Mm -hmm. some people will have more difficult lives and more baggage and more pressures and more issues or whatever to deal with than others, even here in the UK or in America and parts of the West, but we still have it pretty damn good, right? We don't live in any number of countries where people don't have access to basic rights and basic human rights or food or, you know, all of these things. So let's just, yeah, I I guess it's sort of, it annoys me when we go into, yeah, you know, and that's, (laughs) and it's also just like, it's really disrespectful to the people who are genuinely in positions of limited choice and limited anything to then be complaining about how hard we have it. So that's just sort of my political sort of mm-hmm. view on things, right? Yeah. And so even here, just make the most that you possibly can of the choices you do have available. And if your choices are constrained by, again, by, I don't know, racism, sexism, discrimination of any kind, then fight, right? Again, that is another choice. You can either accept it and be unhappy and angry and whatever, or you could look for solutions. You can create organizations that are going to help look for solutions. You can help other people. There's so many things you can do. So just focus on what you can do instead of on all of the things you can't, because there will always be millions of things we can't do that we can't control. We have no access to whatever, but focus on what you can control and then choose very carefully. What are the battles you are going to fight? And what are the things that you're just going to let slide? Because you cannot fight every single battle. So choose the ones that are most important. So that's just one thing I wanted to make sure because, you know, this whole idea of choice is so, it's so fraught, right? Not everybody has access to the same mm-hmm. choices, but that's my view on how we should wield whatever access to choices we have. Um, the question you had asked originally was about the emotional. <laughs> and I remember very vividly last year in particular was a, a relatively big year. You know, I 
Uh, my book had just come out and there were some other big things that happened for me personally as well as professionally. Some amazingly good, some really, really tragic and really bad and sad. And I felt mm. the entire year for, well, maybe not the entire year. I felt most of the year as this wild roller coaster. And some of it, mm -hmm. I think, was what was happening in my life. Some of it, I think, I have a suspicion, I don't know for sure, but I think was also just hormonal because I am in my early 40s and women from their mid-30s, you know, upwards can start to experience sort of hormonal fluctuations due to, you know, perimenopause. And so I, you know, sort of theoretically and intellectually knew these things, but, and very honestly, I remember uh, at one point sitting on my sofa and Googling, like, what are the symptoms of depression? Because I was like, am I depressed? Like, is this, you know, low mood, the wild mood swings, the rage, the, uh, you know, feeling like everything's fine. And then within minutes, feeling like the world was falling apart, like all mm -hmm. of these various emotional symptoms. I was like, maybe it's depression. Uh, so I looked into that. And then I also looked into perimenopause. And it was like a tick box thing. It was when I thought, God, okay, so let's assume that it is perimenopause, right? Let's what can mm -hmm. I do about it. And I did not take a very scientific approach to my my results. But one of the things I knew that had happened last year was I didn't really exercise very much. I would tell myself like, oh, well, I'm generally sort of active enough because I have two small kids, but like I didn't make a conscious and focused effort to exercise as much as I knew I should have or wanted to. And then the second thing is, is also people always talk about movement and exercise as having, you know, we all know this, that they have incredible benefits, mental benefits, emotional benefits, intellectual benefits, like the reasons to move into exercise are I mean, irrefutably long, like it's crazy that human beings still ignore it. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to set myself a goal to move with intention. So people oftentimes like run away from the notion of exercising because it seems like, you know, you have to be sweating it out in the gym. So, you know, this woman uh, uh, sort of framed it as like, don't talk about exercise, talk about movement. So I refine mm -hmm. it as a movement with intention. So not just like walking around my house, but like going for a 10 mile walk or doing yoga or whatever it is to be intentionally in motion. So I'd set myself this target to move with intention five times a week. And because I know on the weekends, I wouldn't want to do anything. And I started that earlier this year in January, and I've consistently kept with that schedule. And it has made an enormous difference. Absolutely enormous. Mm. I don't know if it's just coincidence, I, but those mood swings, the emotional crazy mega highs and then the absolute plummet crashes have really, they're not totally smooth. I'm not a machine or a robot, but mm -hmm. the, the peaks and troughs are not as crazy. And I don't feel as just uh, agitated all the time. And so movement has been brilliant and now for anybody out there who's like oh but i don't have time or like rolling their eyes look you have to make time for it it's not like all of a sudden i have an extra you know 30 minutes in my life to do anything but this is important enough to me because it has ripple effects on everything else that i have made time for it but i've also made it really easy on myself so i'm not like oh well i have to go do these two-hour mega sessions at the gym i do at home yoga watching free videos on youtube <laughs> three times a week mm -hmm. I go for a very short run once, sometimes twice a week. And then if I haven't done my five days in that way between the runs and the yoga, then I will do one session at the gym and that's it. And I don't, 
I don't overcomplicate it. I don't say like, oh, well, if I'm not like, you know, getting to a certain BPM, then it doesn't count or whatever. No, my point is just to show up and do the thing and keep the habit consistent and just let go of all of that, like hyper competitive, oh, you got to sweat it out and you got to do this and bench press that. And I don't have time for that, right? (laughs) Like, There might be a time in my life where I want to make that the way I approach exercise. But for right now, that's not the time. Right now, I just need the consistency and I need the frequency and it's doing just enough to keep me quite literally sane. And so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this personal experience with us. And there are multiple things I think that, that are in play when you're doing it. First, you're not really beating yourself up for not doing, you know, the very good exercise. So you're not, you're trying to just do average, you know, not to be a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, uh, really making your choice, like letting go yeah. of this mental <laughs> chatter. Yeah. And sometimes it's as simple as it sounds, we're just assuming that the thoughts that we have in our heads is what we are and we follow them and we, you know, dig ourselves into this funnel of, of negative thinking when the easiest thing to do is actually sometimes just to let go and either you do it consciously or you distract yourself. Many people distract yes. themselves and they're very successful in yeah. that. You know, you go and change the scene, you travel, you you do something, but sometimes it may not be healthy in the long term because you always have to distract yourself. Yeah. But then basically if you've developed the skill of just consciously letting go of these thoughts of this mental you know rubbish yeah. if you want yeah. you don't need distractions you just uh, become the owner of your life in and, a way and also Natalia it's just doing things this way is a more realistic way of living right because we like to think that oh I'm going to be amazing at everything I'm going to you know work out at the gym two hours a day or and then I'm going to be an awesome parent who makes like organic home-cooked meals every day and I'm going to you know be this powerhouse CEO whose business keeps growing like 200% like we tell ourselves these crazy things and the reality of life and this is true for everyone is you always are making a trade-off every minute Every ounce of energy, every penny, every whatever resource you have at your available that you put and invest towards one thing is a minute, an ounce of energy, a penny, whatever else that you cannot, again, unless you violate the laws of physics, put towards anything else. And so first of all, acknowledging that trade-offs exist is another way of becoming a grown-up because let's face it, Mm -hmm. that's what life is. It's all about trade-offs. And then again, very consciously choosing which trade-offs you're going to make. So I have consciously chosen that my work and my family are going to get a hundred percent of me. Everything else, my friendships, my relationships with other people, my, my exercise or whatever, uh, you know, well, wellness routine or whatever, all of that stuff, I am just going to let myself be good enough at. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to load myself with pressure to do anything more. And, and very recently, sort of the way I've framed it is like, it's taking like a, like a heptathlete approach to life, right? So if you're a heptathlete, you're, for those who don't care about sports, it's an Olympic sport for women where you, you compete in six different sports. And most heptathletes will choose one or a hand, less than a handful, but a few sports that they're really going to be amazing at and everything else, they will just be good enough to qualify. Because you cannot mm. be at the top of your game at six different sports. 
ever. I mean, it's just not physically possible, yeah. especially when the sports are as ranging as, you know, sort of doing endurance sports, like, you know, 400 meter or whatever it is, and to rowing sports mm-hmm. like javelin and, and that kind of thing and long jump. So that's how life is. Life is, you know, using that metaphor more broadly, like having six things that you could theoretically feel pulled to be amazing at, but realistically, you can only be amazing at a few. So choose those few things very carefully and consciously, and then just be good enough at everything else. This is true as a, as a leader, as a, you know, in, in any context, like as a CEO, for example, choose the things that you are going to be really amazing at that, you know, are, are skills that you are uniquely qualified at. Everything else you can just be good enough. You can just be good enough at reading financial statements. You can just be good enough at negotiation. You can be just good enough at whatever else, but then really double down and focus on intentionally leveraging your strengths in, I don't know, business development and networking and inspiring people, whatever it looks like, right? Choose those things very carefully and consciously and be good enough at everything else. Yeah, that's exactly the idea of positive psychology, because we are much more effective if we build on our strengths rather than always spend efforts to improve on our weaknesses, because this improvement would be just, you know, just tiny, but then the improvement on the strengths is is incremental. And uh, I love this idea of, you know, you only have that much of energy and it's like the bucket is only 100% full and you have to deliberately decide where it is going and and be happy with that and and admit that because otherwise you will be just standing there with the full bucket yeah. and uh, not really decide like, and not really doing anything else because you can't do anything 100% well and you will have <laughs> nothing instead that's exactly it that's exactly and again that's that's how life is it's just acknowledging it and and, and recognizing that that's how it is because that's the grown up way to engage with the world as it is, as opposed to like, oh, well, I wish I could do this, that, and the other thing. Well, you can wish for it, but it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. So, yeah. Thank you, Rupal. It was such an inspiring conversation as always with you. Would you like to say something to our listeners as a final remark? Oh, um, God, there are always so many things that I want to say. <laughs> I guess it will be two things if I can is, One, I fundamentally believe that human beings are capable of anything, of everything. And any one individual is capable of infinitely more than than they might recognize for themselves. But you cannot do it alone. So whatever your form of Mm -hmm. greatness looks like, whether that's, you know, in, in sport or in business or in your interpersonal relationships or in whatever context you want to be really, really great in, make sure you have a community of people supporting you. And it doesn't have to be massive. It doesn't have to be hundreds of people, but you cannot do this alone and don't try to. No one has done it alone, by the way, from the beginning of time. Like anyone who's ex- excelled or succeeded at anything has had support, um, both formal and informal. So make sure you get the support that you need because yeah, like I said, it, human beings are infinitely capable. And if you want to to discover what you are capable of, you can't do it alone. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to see you and talk to you. Best of luck in everything that you're doing, onwards and upwards, as usual.